And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we come gathered together to worship you. We come from different places, Lord. Some of us are are here because we want to learn more of you. Some of us are here because we're seeking answers from you. Some of us are here because we feel at this moment, at this stage of life, a desperate need for change and for intervention from you. And then there are some who are in this room who are undecided or ambivalent about Jesus, about the truth of your word and about the good news of the cross and the resurrection and the forgiveness of sins that comes from faith in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to each of us now. As we consider Paul's words, we see that he is talking about having a different perspective, seeing from a a different vantage, looking at circumstances that would normally anger or discourage or frustrate or cause despair in people. But instead, looking at you and seeing that you are in control, he is able to rejoice and say, this doesn't bother me. In fact, it makes me glad. And so we pray, Father, that we would be able to develop this perspective. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that we would see the value, the blessing, the gain that comes from knowing Christ and from being in you, being justified and being called into a relationship with you, adopted as your child. We pray your grace as we hear, and we pray that you would speak to us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In every group, there are those who have differences with one another. There are rivals. There are those who, uh, who are enemies of one another. And the early church was no different. Paul speaks about this in verses 15 through 18. Following... Uh, the, 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 what we could call the, the apostolic period, the time when the scriptures were written, these differences and distinctions, these rivalries have continued throughout, uh, throughout church history. Um, they persist to this day where there are those who say this person doesn't preach or speak the truth and that person then responds and there are these, these battles. There are entire ministries devoted to pointing out the errors and difficulties in people's teachings. Some of these are helpful, and some of them are, are, are done in a way that is unhelpful. 
It's funny, the, the stories that, that come to mind as I'm, I'm preparing or uh, I'm, I'm, I'm researching and reading, and, and I, I, uh, I thought of a story that I heard, I believe it was as I was studying church history a number of years ago. Uh, there were two preachers active in the United States uh, during the, uh, what, what would be called the Great Awakening. Uh, one was a man named uh, Whitfield, and he believed very strongly in the sovereignty of God uh, and in the fact that, that God was the cause of all good things that happened to us. He was completely and utterly in control of everything. This would be called Calvinism, and John, or sorry, Whitfield was a supporter of that. And then there were the Wesley brothers who were active in the United States as well, preaching and teaching, and they believed strongly in free will what some people would call Arminianism, not Armini, Armin, Armenian, um, but Arminian. Anyway, if these things don't mean anything to you, don't worry. Other than to, to know that these guys don't like each other. They are theological rivals. And there was some bitterness and tension between the two of them. And here is how the story goes. One day after Whitfield had died, John Wesley was timidly approached by one of the uh, Christian sisters who supported his ministry and who thought that he was an excellent preacher and teacher of the gospel. And so she comes to him and she says, Mr. Wesley, may I ask you a question? Yes, of course, madam, by all means. Mr. Wesley, I'm very much afraid of what your answer to my question will be. He says, let me hear your question, then I will know, you will know my reply. She asked, Dear Mr. Wesley, do you expect to see Mr. Whitfield in heaven? A lengthy pause followed, after which Wesley replied with great serious, No, madam. She responded, I would have, was afraid you would say so. We'll come back to that. I'll give you the rest of the story. Now you're going to listen, right? All right, good. Paul is in a place where uh, it, it feels to some who are reading, they are concerned for him. They have sent someone to inquire of him and find out how he's doing. He's in a place where it, it seems like the difficulties that he is facing would overwhelm and stop his ministry. We looked last week in the, in the first verses uh, at how people perceived that his chains had stopped his ministry and how his perspective was that his chains were actually a gift from God which served to advance his ministry and move it forward. That because he was imprisoned, he was able to enter new mission fields, right? He, he was out in the world preaching the gospel to the general population and then he was put in chains and now he's suddenly able to speak to Roman guards and to speak to officials within the Roman Empire. A new door had opened up. Also, there were those who saw him taken out of circulation, out of preaching, and said, we need to stand up and we need to speak the gospel. We need to preach the truth because people need to hear. And so he was chained and his chains became a, a doorway to new ministry. His chains also gave other people opportunity. His chains did not stop 
his ministry. Instead, they made it possible for further ministry. And we spoke last week about the fact that all of our circumstances that we may see as disabling, as this changes everything, this stops me, this, uh, this keeps me from accomplishing things, that if we have the right perspective, we will see these as opportunities. If we have eyes to see, we'll see what it is that God is opening the door for. Because there is always possibility. We view chains with an earthly perspective many times, but if we view them with God's perspective, we can see them as new opportunities. Paul then turns in verses 15 to 18, and he talks about his critics, those who say that he is not preaching the true gospel. There are two different kinds of of, of people who are speaking up from the fact that, that Paul is in prison. And he says this, that there are those who preach Christ from envy and rivalry and those who do it from goodwill. There are those who are earnest and honest and said, Paul's not out there preaching and teaching. I need to fill that gap because people need to hear about Jesus. And then there were those who said, oh, good. Paul's not around to correct us, challenge us. Say that what we're saying's not true. And they were out there now doing the easy, perhaps, work of tearing down Paul and, and ripping apart what he was proclaiming and saying, this guy's in error. And they were maybe, think about it, communicating somehow to Paul or word was getting back that they were doing this and, and, and they were expecting that this would make Paul feel anxious, that it would make him frustrated. Right. Have, you ever, have you ever seen this when, when uh, somebody who you would consider a rival or a critic of you, maybe they get a promotion. Maybe they are in a place where they can speak poorly about you. Maybe they uh, put you on blast, right? This is the, I believe, the terminology. No? You're just so hip. I'm Am I hip? I'm good. Good. So cool. <laughs> you know, they put you on blast on Facebook and they're like, this person's dumb, right? And you're like, What? They, 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 they're, they're, they're tearing you down. Um, we sometimes feel that we need to reduce ourselves to their level and go and fight with them, right? We get so angry. The Bible actually, in the Old Testament, uh, when, it, when it talks about anger, sometimes it uses the idiom, uh, uh, if somebody gets angry, it says that their face got hot, right? You know that feeling, right? Where you just get, you see red, and you're just like, you know, we draw cartoons of, of smoke, coming off of people's heads or steam coming out of their ears because it's sometimes in anger we just we lose our perspective and we're like I must destroy or speak or respond in turn. Here's the truth for the people who are sitting on the outside and who are emotionally detached. Many times we see somebody exhibiting bad behavior and we think, "Oh my goodness, what's wrong with that person?" We say to our friend that we're trying to comfort, like you don't have to respond to them on their level. What they're saying says something about them, not about you, right? We can all see their bad behavior, their immaturity. Paul's enemies were trying to make things uncomfortable for him. Paul was traveling around. He had heard the gospel. He grew up in, outside of Jerusalem. He, he learned the traditions of his forefathers and then came to Christ in a confrontational moment, very much in the way that the Gentiles would. 
They, they, would, they would hear the gospel and they would say, I've never heard this. I need to change my life. This is, this is what was going on in Jerusalem, though. The people were debating, do we need to become Jews in order to become Christians? Do we need to submit ourselves to the law, be circumcised, maintain the diet, and then we can become Christians? And Paul is saying that is not how this works. And he was going around and preaching the truth as we find it in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. And then there were these people who were coming in after him, after he would leave town, and they would say, Paul taught you wrong. And then they would fix, in air quotes, his theology, and they would mess everything up. Instead of saying, you are Free and saved by God's grace. God gave you Christ. Christ takes your sins and you receive his righteousness. And all you need to do is say, I am a sinner and I need that. That's it. That's all that's required to be saved. Instead, they're saying, you need to do this and this and this and this. And they're preaching another gospel, which Paul says in the book of Galatians is no gospel at all. Because there's no other good news. The good news is that righteousness is a gift from God. Jesus and faith in Jesus equals salvation. Not Jesus and faith in Jesus and do all this stuff equals salvation. And so they were undermining Paul's emphasis on grace. They were focusing on obedience to the law. And many of them were hoping to advance their own reputations. They were envious of Paul's popularity and his prominence. And they were striving for selfish reasons. They had a desire to be seen as great within the community, as great teachers or great speakers or great theologians. It was all about them. Others had a sincere sense of mission The mission of the church is not to make superheroes out of individuals. The mission of the church is not to allow certain people who speak and teach and preach and educate others to become the popular ones and the heroes of the people. I think that preachers and teachers should hopefully look a a bit like um, those Ziploc containers that you can buy in the store, right? You know, we, we don't like or use... Uh, containers in our house that aren't transparent because you can't see what's in them, right? You know, if you can't see what's in it, you don't open it up to eat it. And if you don't open it up to eat it, right, it grows fungus. And if it grows fungus, you find it months later and it is nasty. And if you find it months later, my wife will not throw it away. She will bring it to me and I will have to throw it away because she doesn't do nasty containers. And so I don't like containers that aren't transparent. What, as, as preachers and believers, we need to make sure that people can look at us and see us and see the message. And I'm not just talking about guys who get up and preach on Sunday morning. I'm talking about all of us in our witness. We need to make sure that people can see through us, beyond us, and see Jesus, not us. It's not, hey, I work here. I'm a Christian. I'm awesome. Right? It's in their mind. You are in this place. You do your job. You are a Christian and people see through you and they see Jesus. Not you. Right? Paul says imitate me, but he doesn't say imitate me because I'm Paul and I'm awesome. He says imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look beyond me and look to him. Anyone who says, hey, look at me. 
look at me is either in it for themselves or struggling with their self. And they ought to be continuously, constantly laying the self aside, saying, look to Jesus. There were those who stood up and spoke up when Paul was imprisoned, and they had an earnest, honest desire to reach the lost. This is what Paul is talking about when he says they preached from goodwill. They were seeking to fill the gap, the void that was created by Paul's imprisonment. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. What he's saying here, Paul uses this word defense. This is not necessarily just talking about protecting the gospel. It's talking about the fact that he is now as a new stage. He's going to be put out in public on trial and people are going to be asking questions. And Paul needs to speak eloquently and clearly and in such a way that people will hear the good news about Jesus and believe it. He's put there to defend it, to advance it. This is a word that would be used for getting people to support him. These false teachers were building a faction, yes, but they were building a faction, oh, thank you, for themselves, for their own name. They were building the tribe of me. Paul was building a faction, but it was a faction that was focused on Jesus. He was building a group of believers who put their faith and trust in him and not in Paul. People who said, we love the Savior, not just our teacher. Our tribe is faithful to Jesus, not to our tribe. Does that make sense? And so the opposition needed to be asked, whose side are you on? Are you on Jesus' side or on your own? They would frequently go to people and say, are you followers of Paul? Because you need to become followers of our teaching in our way. You need to follow us. These kinds of troubles persist to this day. Within groups of Christians, we often find that there are different religious tests. What do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? What's your theology or your position on this issue or on that issue? And many Christians have found when they don't measure up, when they don't answer the questions correctly, according to the person who's asking them, they find distance grows between them, right? You find that because you don't subscribe to this belief or like this preacher or like this teacher, that now suddenly this person doesn't like you. You ever had this happen to you? That is messed up. Those who practice this kind of thing, I believe they're harming themselves. They're harming the church. And they're harming the innocent. Paul has something to say to the church today, I believe, in how we handle those that we consider that they preach a message that is less than 100% accurate. I believe that Paul would apply this test to those who we might consider false and dangerous. And I want to be careful in the way that I say this, because I am not going to say that we should never correct false teaching, or we should never say anything against somebody that we might consider a a false teacher, or that if somebody's out there and they're saying that the Bible says the exact opposite of what it says, that we shouldn't say, hey, you know what, that's not right. 
But this is what I believe. Many Christians turn inward to the church and they focus so much on perfect doctrine, perfect teaching, saying everything 100% constantly right all the time, that they forget the fact that there is a world of people out there who need to hear the truth. They forget the fact that people don't speak the same language as we do as Christians. That after a few years as a believer, you speak in a way that might seem completely and utterly alien to other people. I had a friend who, who, who pointed out the fact that, that when Christians uh, connect with a leader or a teacher or a pastor and they spend years in that person's ministry hearing them preach, they, they say things like, I sit under the teaching of Pastor Keith Meyer. What in the world does that mean? You sit under someone's teaching? Say that to your coworkers tomorrow and ask them, what, is it, what do you think that means? They're like, if they're honest, they'll say, that sounds a little weird. We have our own way of speaking and sometimes it can disconnect us from the world. We become so internally focused on purifying the church that we're not focused on reaching people and drawing them into the church. Good doctrine is good. And it is important. And we ought to preach and teach the truth. But we don't need to spend all of our time focusing on tearing down people who aren't doing the job as well as we think we're doing it. My pastor and I were out at a conference in Minneapolis. This is uh, probably six months after Sam had been born. So this is 1999. Hmm? Three months. Um, Timelines, math. And so we're there. And uh, we were online for coffee. We're in John Piper's church at his conference. This is when the conference was still a little small. And uh, there weren't like 3,000 guys going. There were just like two or 300 guys going. And uh, so we're there online and we're waiting for coffee. And I could just tell my pastor's getting agitated. He's getting irritated. His, his body language. He's a, he's a big guy, you know, and so he's like, and I'm like, you know, what's going on? We get up to the line and, and he says to the gal who's serving coffee, right? She's got her Starbucks apron on, she's got the, the Starbucks. Uh, cooler, heater, warmer, thermos, right? And, and she's dispensing coffee, words. And, um, and so he says, hey, what do you think about what's going on here? What do, you, what do you think of this conference? All these guys getting together, singing about Jesus. What do you think about that? And she said, I, I don't really know. Well, what do you mean, why? And he, she said, you see these guys over here at the table? She said, I don't know who they're talking about or what they're really talking about. She said, but they're arguing about something. She said, the way that I figure it is if you guys all believe this stuff and they're all, you're all here and they can't agree and get it right, how in the world could I get it right? So my reaction is, man, I don't really know what you're talking about. That's really sad. I'm going to go sit and drink some coffee. Mike goes and he sits down at the table with them. And so I sat with him. And he said, hey, what are you guys talking about? Well, you know, we're, we're, we're analyzing the, uh, the teachings of John Piper. So we're at this conference. And we're also talking about whether or not uh, Billy Graham preaches a true gospel. 
And if anybody can be saved listening to Billy Graham, and Mike says, listen, there is a young woman standing right over there listening to you. And she is now further from Christ because of the way that you're acting, the way that you're conducting yourselves. You need to be aware that the lost are listening. Come on. I was like, okay, I want to go drink some coffee somewhere else. <laughs> can, we, can we go now? Man, I'll tell you what. He took them to town. And as years have passed, more and more I have thought, we just need to be aware that people are listening when we argue and we fight and we post things on Facebook. The world is watching and they are judging. And the way that they're judging is different than the way that we judge. They are looking and they are saying that person is so full of themselves and their knowledge. They are so abrasive. They are so difficult. I don't understand a thing that they're saying. Instead of saying, you know what, that person is amazing. Look at them caring and giving of themselves. Look at the trust and the faith that they have in Jesus. We need to be careful about the way that we talk. Paul's focus here is singular when he judges both those who are teaching. Remember, these are, these are people who are teaching a gospel that says, if you become a Jew, you will be saved. They're preaching a gospel that he says is not a gospel. Okay? His singular mind is focused on the result of the activity, not their motives. Paul internally says, they're trying to afflict me, right? 2,000 years before Taylor Swift went into a booth and said, haters are going to hate, right? Shake it off. Paul's like, doesn't bother me. Follows the example of Jesus who says, shake the dust off of your feet. Paul asks this question, is Christ being proclaimed, right? The former... Proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. There are some who are out there saying, look at me, I'm a preacher. I preach and teach Jesus. Aren't I awesome? And then there are those who do it sincerely. What then? Paul asks. So what? How do I react to this? This is verse 18. He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. People are hearing about Jesus, no matter how they're hearing about it. No matter who they're hearing it from. I was messaging my mom, and, and I was like, um, remind me of who you were listening to when you, when you heard the gospel and, and you became a Christian. And she's like, Chuck Swindoll. And I'm like, yeah, I know, Mom. Like, he's the good guy. Right? Like, I grew up listening to Chuck Swindoll. He's a, he's a good guy. He, he preaches and teaches the truth. But, but I can remember you were saying that you were listening to some weird people. Right? Like, like and so I, I named a few people who we would consider nowadays cultists, weirdos. And she's like, yeah, I listened to them for a while, and then I stopped. Didn't you go to, like, some weird church for a little while before? Oh, yeah, we went to this guy's church. But he was weird. And then we left, and we went to First Baptist Church of Union, where we heard the truth. And we, my mother heard the gospel, though, from weird people. And she believed at the preaching of weird people. And then she found the truth. 
The Holy Spirit shepherded her and guided her. And there were believers who helped her along the way. But what they didn't focus on was how weird those people were. They focused on the truth and led them to the truth. Here, I think, is a better track than saying, oh, you're listening to this person that's bad. That person's bad. And by default, you're bad for liking them or listening to them. And this is the way we can come off if we're not careful. Instead, I think we have to ask the question, what can I add to the conversation? What can I add? I have, I have been around Christians longer than I can remember anything. I was in church before, like, I have, I have like, conscious thoughts. You know, I just, I remember, like, being in children's church and the teacher being like, what are you drawing? And I'm like, a man in space. She's like, you're supposed to be drawing, like, a scene from the Exodus or something. And I'm like, I drew an astronaut, you know? Like, this is just, like, my thoughts are just jumbled. and dis- I've always been in church. Here's what I've, I've, I've discovered, is that when you start talking about things like Jesus is the source of our righteousness... And you ask people, how are you saved? And they say, oh, I believe in Jesus. You say, okay, how does trusting in Jesus actually save you? They're like, I don't really know. God takes your sins from you and he puts them on Christ and puts him to death. And your sins are paid for. And you get his righteousness and you are perfect in God's eyes the way he is perfect. People say, Wow, that's amazing. You can add that to the conversation instead of having to tear down the person that they're listening to. You just move them along. Move them in the right direction instead of, instead of having to focus on how bad they are. Because you know what? This is the truth. Dr. Al Mohler said this uh, about some prominent televangelist who lots of Americans listen to and lots of people say does not preach the truth. He says... This person comes on TV and talks to them and they just, they want that guy to be their grandson. They they look at him and they think, I want my life to be just like that. I want to be happy like that guy. And then we come along and we're like, that guy's awful. Right? People are listening. This person's telling them about Christ and we need to say, this is the truth. Good for you. You're interested in the Bible. You're memorizing stuff. You're reading stuff. You're, you're listening to, to the truth. Here's more truth. You know what happens? Sooner or later, people are like, the Bible says what you're saying. Not necessarily what they're saying. And they move towards the truth. We need to make sure that we're sharing the good news that God loves men and women he created in his image, that though they are separated from him because of their sin, he has made a way for them to receive the truth and walk in it. Good doctrine is important. Truth is important. But it's important not to educate people into a terrible distraction of fixing everything all the time. We need to focus people on the mission of reaching people for Christ with the truth, yes, but not to get them so focused on purity and perfection that they're just kind of rearranging all the, the furniture and, and the, the contents of the closets of Christianity, trying to get everything perfect, and then we can live out our mission. We need to live out our mission now. Here's what I think of focus on tearing 
down can breed within the church. A focus on getting everything right before we do anything can breed a, 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 a sense of struggle or trouble in the church. I think that some people can say, boy, if you need to know all that stuff to communicate the truth, then the gospel is so complicated I could never share it. Boy, it's really risky to share the gospel with somebody, isn't it? Because I could get it wrong. I could get it really, really wrong. And I just keep hearing every single week about all these different ways that people get it wrong. I read this blog or this Facebook guy, and he's like, this is wrong, and that person's wrong. Man, I'm not smart as those people. I could never share this. The truth is, the gospel is crazy simple. And if we share it, and people understand it, and the Holy Spirit's at work, and they receive it, they're like, that's great news. It's really not that complicated, folks. But we can make it so complicated and terrify people that they never actually share. Here's the other thing. I think that we can get so focused on the fact that there are so many imposters out there that need to be taken down that there's no good work going on at all. And this is the truth. There are more Christians out there in the world active in sharing the gospel right now than there have ever been in history. We are living in an amazing time of gospel work. But if we focus solely on error and difficulty, we are never going to see it. Here's the third thing. People can get so focused on correcting their theological deficiencies or learning the things that they don't know that they think, boy, there are so many things that I need to get right in order to please God. And now they're not thinking consistently with the gospel. This is the truth. When you come to Jesus with all your bad theology and all your wrong thinking and all your misconceptions about God and you think, I am a sinner in need of a savior and God's offering me salvation. He's offering me freedom from my sins and righteousness in Christ. He's just holding that out to me saying, if you believe that you are a sinner and my son is your savior, if you take it, I will declare you righteous. You know what? With all their bad theology, they are still saved. All we need to do to receive righteousness from Christ is to believe and then to grow. We don't, we don't need to understand everything. We don't need to get everything perfect in order to please God. Let me move from the very specific to what I think is the very general. Sometimes people we don't like have good ideas, right? Sometimes... Uh, our predictions don't come true. And somebody else who we might consider our rival at work, it, it does. You know, what, what we thought would happen doesn't happen, and what they thought would happen doesn't happen. Sometimes we get it wrong and someone else gets it right. Sometimes we don't get a promotion that we think we deserve and somebody else does. You know what? It happens. We don't need to rip that person up or tear them down. <coughs> Paul takes a different view. Even though his rivals are achieving some prominence and taking steps forward and, and moving the gospel forward, Paul's like, you know what? I win. Because Jesus is being proclaimed. Paul believed that it was better for people with impure motives to preach Christ than to not preach him at all. 
I believe it's Harry Ironside, an old-timey preacher, who said, the power of the gospel does not depend on the character of the preacher. power of the gospel doesn't depend on the character of the preacher. We ought to strive for good character. But the power is in the message, not in the one proclaiming it. We ought to focus on the advancement of the Lord's plan and not the self and not on what we think of individuals. Let me tell you, the longer I walk with Christ, the more that I find that people that I disagree with two or three things about their theology, I find that when I dig in and I read about them and look at their life and the way that they live it, I think, man, I really like that guy. Why didn't we were friends? Probably be helpful to know this person. Man, look at them. Working hard, serving Jesus. I think it was D.L. Moody. Somebody walked up to them and said, I don't like the way that you preach the gospel. And he responded by saying, I like the way that I do it better than the way that you don't do it. (laughs) We need to make sure as believers that we're generous with our words that we are ready to bless and to encourage and not quick to tear down and to destroy. We need to make sure that our focus is on advancing the Lord's plan and not the self. Let me tell you, you do a, a, a search of church history and you look at the past and you look at the people that the Lord has used to bring revival and, and great advancement to his kingdom. It's shocking who Jesus chooses to use. It's shocking. There are two responses to that, right? You could be like, Lord, how could you use such wretched, horrible people? How irresponsible of you. Or you could say, oh my goodness, and he uses me. Because let me tell you what, I'm reminded on a daily basis of how imperfect I am. And almost everybody I respect in ministry talks about how imperfect they are. Sometimes I'm like, I don't see it. They see it. See inside. Whitfield and Wesley had been close friends at Oxford, but they were often in sharp disagreement on certain things. Wesley had these Arminian beliefs, not Armenian, Arminian. Uh, He focused on free will and on the need for people to respond to Christ in order to be saved. They needed to believe and then they needed to live holy lives. That was Wesley's thing. And Whitfield was a Calvinist. He talked about predestination and and the saving grace of God, which drew people and the enabling power of God, which enabled people to make faith decisions. Both men led countless people to Christ, but they were at odds theologically and people knew it. Wesley began to preach against predestination. He called it a monstrous doctrine and a blasphemy. Whitfield is recorded as saying to him, why dispute with one another? I am willing to go with you to prison and to death, but I am not willing to oppose you publicly. Whitfield, however, at a later point was outraged that Wesley wrote an anti-predestination pamphlet and sent it from England to the United States where it circulated widely, and Whitfield was angry. And so the two men live their ministries. Whitfield goes to be with the Lord. Maybe, right? 
Wesley was approached by the woman who said, can I ask you a question? Of course, by all means. I'm afraid what your answer will be, Mr. Wesley. Let me hear your question, he said, and then you will know my reply. She asked, Mr. Wesley, do you expect to see Mr. Whitfield in heaven? A lengthy pause followed, after which John Wesley replied with great serious, no, madam, to which the questioner replied, I was afraid that you would say so. To which Wesley added with intense earnestness, do not misunderstand me, madam. George Whitfield was so bright a star in the expanse of God's glory and will stand so near the throne that one like me, who am less than the least, will never even catch a glimpse of him. Though theologically, they differed dramatically. Wesley had no doubt whose team George Whitfield was on. And George had no doubt either. As believers, our focus and our goal ought to be, is Christ being preached? There are churches that will receive prominence and we will think that should not happen. They don't do things the way we do them. There are pastors who will achieve success and we will say they do not deserve it. You will patiently and carefully share the gospel with somebody at your work for years and someone new will get hired and say, Jesus is amazing. And people will be like, I believe. And you'll say, why? What happened? As long as Christ is preached, as long as he is proclaimed, we ought to rejoice. And in all circumstances, Paul will say we ought to rejoice because it's not about us. It's about God and whether he receives that glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness toward us. We do not deserve not one bit of the kindness and favor that you show toward us. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve any of your graciousness at all, but you give it to us because you are good and kind. And then you use us in our lives. You use us to be a positive influence on others, to encourage. You use us to share the saving truth about Jesus. You use us that that people might hear the truth. How could you do that? How could you use imperfect people? Apart from Christ, there are no people to be used at all. And so we thank you for using us. We pray that we would be careful in the way that we speak of others, Lord, because the world is watching and listening. We pray that we would focus on Jesus and that we would do so humbly, that we would put great confidence in the truth and less confidence in ourselves, that we would point people to imitate us as we imitate Christ but to look past us and to look to him. Father, we pray that we would be those who labor in prayer, that the kingdom would move forward and that people would hear about Jesus, that people would trust him. 
We pray that you would help us to put the self to death, to put jealousy and envy and strife to death, and that we would cheer the victories of others as the kingdom moves forward. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness toward us. We pray your grace as we seek to reach others with the good news. And we pray that we would grow in dependence on you ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together.